Feel free to grab a seat, everyone. Greetings and salutations, you could say. My name is Phil Pearson, and I'm uh, the ministry director and on staff and pastoral team, and it's a joy to be with you. Normally, I would send the grade four to sixes away, but I don't need to do that. They're not here today, so we're all good. Um, my brain just fully blanked for a second, thinking, what am I doing? Uh, we are in the middle or wrapping up our series, Stumbling Towards Grace, which is an eight-week series of exploring the book of Philippians, and we're doing it in two parts. So the first part is Stumbling with Grace, and then starting next week, we're going to do five weeks of exploring our values through the book of Philippians. And I'm really excited about that next part of our series. But the verse, the passage that we're in today, Philippians 2, verse 1 to 11, is potentially the greatest passage in all the New Testament. At least that's my opinion, and it's also the opinion of many theologians, so I'll put my hat with that. Um, the theologian Michael Gorman in his book, Inhabiting the Cruciform God, calls this Paul's masterwork, his ultimate thesis behind all his other writings. If you want to get what Paul is trying to do, read 2, verse 1 to 11, and you will understand the thrust of what Paul is trying to say. So I actually want to do something a little weird. Well, not weird because we're Anglican, but this is normal. It's just weird for me. Um, I'm going to read through the passage again. And at verse 6, I'm going to invite you to read it with me. And so I actually want you guys to stand one more time um, because this passage, especially 6 to 11, is a creed. It's an early church creed that had been written um, and was used by early churches to understand their faith. So we just read the Nicene Creed, but... The church in Philippi, they didn't have the Nicene Creed yet. They had 6 to 11. So um, join with me in 2, verse 1 to 11. And then I will invite you to read with me starting at 6. And I'll try to set a good cadence, but I probably won't. But therefore, if you have any encouragement from being being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in mind and one in spirit and mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And join with me. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that in that name of Jesus Christ every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Grab a seat. Well, I'm uncomfortable now, but we're here. Uh, let me pray and we'll dive from here, Lord. Father God, we give thanks to be a church buried underneath the city, to be a church serving you in the heart of the city. We ask that in this service and throughout our week and with our community, we regularly experience your goodness and we seek to share that goodness with the city around us that we are shaped and formed by it day in and day out. This morning, I pray that what is of you would rise up, would shape our hearts and minds, and what is of me would fall away. In your name, amen. Well, I don't know about you, but one of my favorite parts of Vancouver is, of course, the North Mountains. 
They bring me so much joy having come from Ontario, which is essentially flat. There's a few mountains in Ontario, Mount Blue Mountain, they try to call it. It's a ski hill that takes five minutes to ski down. Or there's Mount Trashmore in my hometown, which was a garbage dump that they covered with dirt. And then they called it a tourist attraction. And it's really nice, but it's just garbage underneath. But here in Vancouver, we have the mountains to stare at regularly. And there may be no greater joy than biking across the Burrard Bridge and seeing the sunset like paint across the mountains. And not only are they beautiful, but they are anchoring for us as a city. If you grow up in the lower mainland, you always have a north point as long as you can see them. And in the days and weeks when it rains and is snowy or, or cloudy, my wife and I, we always look at each other if we haven't seen the mountains in a few days. And quoting Bilbo to, to Gandalf in the shower, we say, I want to see the mountains, Gandalf. The mountains. <laughs> we say that at least three times a week. But for us, living in Vancouver, there's always this thing to look to beyond ourselves, something that we can anchor ourselves by, the North Mountains. And when my friends from Ontario began visiting and coming and seeing us, I began saying things like, oh yeah, go south two blocks and then turn left on fifth. And they'd be like, what? Or I'd say like, turn west. And I kept using compass directions because I noticed something very intriguing here is that we have a natural compass point. And today in this passage, what Paul is doing with the church in Philippi is setting up the North Mountains pointing them in the direction and saying, anchor your life by this. Your compass will never be wrong if you have the North Mountains in front of you. Because Paul has been writing with these life-giving word of, like words of affirmation over this church, building up to something. And in this passage, he's going to do two things. First, he's finally going to call out the corrosive sin at work in the church in Philippi. He's finally going to say what's wrong and part of the reason why he's writing to them. But then he's going to give the antidote. He's going to give how to live in light of that. And as we'll come to see, it's look north. Look to that mountain and orient your life around it. So I'm going to move through three chunks of this text. And Michael read a little bit more. That's probably my fault. I'm not a good editor because I left 18, but we're just going to go to a verse 11. So I, mean, I want to start with 2, verse 1 to 4. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, and rather... In humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. What's going on here in this passage is one of those like blink and you'll miss it moments. Paul is bearing the lead in this passage. He's trying to call something out in this church, but he's doing it very subtly and very intentionally because there's an issue of pride at work in the church of Philippi. And the thing is, you can't call out pride head on. You can't tell a prideful person they're prideful. Prideful people are sometimes called bullheaded because if you attack them head on, you will get their horns. And I know this from working in the restaurant industry for eight years where the only way to deal with a prideful person is to kind of massage it, to be subtle, to compliment them and then critique them at the same time. So this is actually what Paul is seeking to do. So he starts off by saying, therefore, if you have any encouragement with Christ, any comfort from him, any fellowship, any tenderness, any compassion, 
And he's listing out all these different things, these experiences that Christians in Philippi and Christians today will have had at some point in their life. It may not be the moment they're in right now, but at some point in their their Christian journey, they will have experienced comfort or encouragement or fellowship or tenderness. And Paul is casting this wide net over the church in Philippi, catching everyone in it in order to critique and rebuke a few people along the way, and everyone included. In a similar way, here at St. Pete's, if I wanted to comment on um, showing up on time, I could, I could cast a wide net. I could say, if any of you have experienced the joy of flannel, the comfort of a good plaid shirt, if any of you have worn the wonderful Patagonia rain jackets or struggled to find your blundstones after a party, then make my joy complete by showing up at 9.58 a.m., maybe 9.45, hang out in the lobby with us. But I could cast it, and I wouldn't be pointing my finger at latecomers. I'd be pointing my finger at everyone, because we've all struggled with trying to find our blundstones or the joy of plaid on Sundays. Plaid count looks like about four today. Pretty low. But Paul knows that these people in the church have experienced this joy, this grace, this encouragement. And so he's, re- he's referring to everyone, but he's wanting to call out a certain action at work in all these people. So he says, make my joy complete, all of you, especially those of you who are prideful, but I haven't said it yet, by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and mind. So he says these three things, and the thing is, there's very little difference between these three statements. Being like-minded, having the same love, and being one in spirit is all a way of saying, be unified. Let unity be the thing that marks your community. And he's pleading with this church, be a united church, not a divisive church, not an infighting church, one that has the same love, the same desire, the same goal. And then he builds it up and he adds this piece. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. And finally, after a full chapter in Philippians, he says what the issue is. Pride. Pride is having its way in this church. He calls it selfish ambition and vain conceit. Well, what's selfish ambition and vain conceit? A person of selfish ambition is driven by their own desire for power and affluence. They see people around them as nothing more than a stepping stone to meet their own desires. And a person person of vain conceit is filled with empty glory. They fail to see all the privileges, all the ways they've been blessed, all the ways others have helped them. They just see life as about themselves. And I think this is why it's so important for us in Vancouver to read a passage like this, to feel convicted like this, because if there's a city or if there's a sin for our city and our age, it's selfish ambition and vain conceit. It's the water we're swimming in here in Vancouver. And so I don't say this to point my finger at you. I say that we're swimming in this water of pride and we are in danger of it ourselves. And it is corrosive. And if you don't think you agree with me yet? Well, then Paul adds this litmus test at the very end. He says, in humility, value others above yourselves. When I imagine this being read out in front of the church in Philippi, because early letters, they would come to the church, and then on a Sunday morning like this, they would just read through the whole letter. I kind of imagine it going like this. The person gets up and goes, okay, well, Paul has sent us a list of things to live by. Let's just go through, do a little check how we're doing as a community. Be like-minded. Check. We're of the same mind. We're about the renewal of the city. We're about experiencing the goodness of God. Okay. Have the same love. Check. We all love Jesus. 
one in spirit. We're doing okay. There's like Horatio. He doesn't quite agree all the time. We'll tell him later. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Suddenly it gets a little quieter in the room. But then you remember, oh, well, we know Dave. Dave's selfish. So we got to tell Dave to stop being selfish. We point it away from ourselves. The, the monster of pride in ourselves peeks out and points the direction away. And then he drops the line. Value others above yourselves. There's no more nodding, no more amen. Instead, a bit of spark of frustration. There's no way to get around that. And maybe you don't think it's about you. And maybe I think it's not about me. So let me ask some questions of reflection that are going to be a little triggering for us. I'll give a little trigger warning here. What do you and I do that we think we're better than other people. Who do I think I'm better than? Who do I think I dress better than? Who do I think I make better decisions than? Who do I think I work harder than? Who do I think I'm a better Christian than? C.S. Lewis in, in Mere Christianity, he talks about pride and he brings up this vital piece of pride. And he says, pride by its nature is competitive. The reason it's so dangerous to community is that it means the community you are in is the enemy, the very thing to be better than. And Paul is looking at this church in Philippi and really every church and says, don't let selfish ambition, pride, vain conceit have any place in your community because it immediately creates infighting. And if you think you're free from it, you're probably wrong. So he points out this issue and then offers a small antidote to start. And with that question that's a litmus test, it's also immediately an antidote. He says, consider others as more valuable than yourself. Seek their interests first. But what does it mean to consider others as better than yourself? Because this text has that nature of being dangerous. If, if used in the wrong way, it can become a form of self-flagellation, of, of seeing others as never, as ourselves as never good as others, comparing ourselves to other people in a negative way, and always saying, everyone's better at this me, and being whiny all the time. But that's not what's going on. The key word here that Paul uses is in humility. Timothy Keller, the pastor from New York, he says that humility, true humility, is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Humility is putting others in um, others. Uh, humility is putting yourself and others in perspective, having an accurate view of oneself. We're about to go into Ash Wednesday, and Ash Wednesday we mark ourselves with the cross and we say, remember to dust you are and to dust you will return. And there was this old Jewish rabbi, and in order to practice humility, he carried two pieces of paper in his pockets, one in each one. And on one, it said, to dust you are and to dust you will return. And the other said, for me, this world was made. And humility is the space in between those. True humility is understanding I will die, I am broken, but also God loves me. And to put this kind of in a more practical, helpful way, think of airplane safety. In an airplane safety training, the very first thing they say is, Put oxygen on yourself first. 
A truly humble person, if the plane is about to crash, will put the oxygen mask on themselves first because they will understand their own need for oxygen and then they will put it on someone else first. But a prideful person, a, driven, a person driven by vain conceit, will say, it's okay, I can hold my breath for like five minutes. Let me make sure that everyone's mask is securely in place. And I'm gonna go help the pilot, because clearly he doesn't know what he's doing. And a person driven by selfish ambition would put the mask on themselves and then like rip everyone else's masks off, being like, you can't take my oxygen. That's the difference of vain conceit, selfish ambition, and humility. So it's not consider yourself as the worst person, it's just consider others as of more value than you. Consider their, their interests of more importance. But you still have needs and you need to meet those in order to meet other people's. In C.S. Lewis, he, he has this beautiful line and he says, a person that you see as truly humble, you will not think, he will not be thinking about humility, he will not be thinking about himself at all. A prideful person will be the complete opposite. All they will do is talk about themselves, and they might talk about themselves positively or negatively. And so Paul addresses this issue and gives this minor antidote. In humility, consider others better than yourself. Meet each other's needs first. But then he's like, if you're not convinced, then look to Jesus. The spark of your imagination should come from the North Mountains. The founder of our faith perfected humility. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And the word here, mindset, it goes back to have the same mind, be like-minded. It's all about unity here. And Paul says the way to have unity is to think, what did Jesus do? And if you're like me and you grew up in the Protestant evangelical movement over the past 30 years, you're immediately, like your wrist will start to itch with where your WWG, WWJD bracelet used to be. And maybe you'll cringe a little bit, but this is what Paul is getting at. In order to live in humility, we must ask, what would Jesus do? What did Jesus do? And so Paul goes to this early church creed and he lays it out beautifully. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Paul starts off, this creed starts off with a vital truth. Jesus is in very nature God. He's not a prophet. He's not a really good teacher. He is, in all of who he is, God. He was there at the beginning of creation. Through him, all things were made. His substance is God. The writer of Hebrews describes Jesus as the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And the biblical writers want us to understand that when we see Jesus, what we see Jesus doing, we see God doing. And what do we see in this act of humility from Jesus? Well, it says this, Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. In the ESV, it says, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Or another translation puts it something to cling to. In Jesus, we see no selfish ambition, no vain conceit. And this image is actually meant to bring us all the way back to Genesis 3. In the very beginning, the fall of of humanity, what happens? Adam and Eve see the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and the serpent tells them, you will be like God. And so they grasp it for themselves. 
They grasp at divinity. Driven by selfish ambition, they take hold of it. And that truth in Genesis 3 holds through, through all the rest of history. Humanity has been trying our whole existence to become more and more like God. We grasp for more power. We attempt to seize more control. We do it any way we can. We feel small, but we don't want to, so we put others down. We feel powerless, so we yell at people. We feel slighted, so we push people out. We do anything to have a sense of control in our moment. If you don't agree with me, just go get stuck, stuck in rush hour traffic on the way to a very important meeting, and suddenly everyone's actions will be a slight against you. And Paul points this church in Philippi to Jesus. He says, look to the new and better Adam. If selfish ambition is your drive, if vain conceit fills your heart, look northwards. Look to the humility of Jesus. Jesus, as part of the Trinity, Jesus, in very nature God, does not grasp or try to hold on to power. He does nothing that is self-serving for his own advantage. He becomes a servant a helpless baby, a helpless baby. And I find that so much of the time, theological textbooks, they try to get us to understand it perfectly, but I think the biblical writers, more than anything, they want us to stare at the mystery with awe and wonder. It's important to understand divinity and humanity, but more importantly is to just let it wash over you. Paul and God want us to be awed. In the greatest act of humility, the God of creation chooses to show himself as a helpless baby, crying for his mother's breast, having no power in and of himself. And then, not only that, but he then chooses humility again. He allows himself to be humbled and humiliated, scorned and made fun of, obedient all the way to death in one of the most humiliating ways in all of history. And Jesus never fights against it. He never hits back. He never worries about his wounded pride. He never tries to stand up. Paul holds this double act of humility in Jesus as the North Mountains. Because Jesus could have come as a man in power. He could have been a king to rule over the nations, but instead something different. And so Paul says, look at that. Theologically, we call this act kenosis, and it just means it comes from the Greek word pour out. And in Jesus, we see God constantly pouring himself out, and this act of Jesus reveals to us that God is by nature kenotic. God, in his nature, is Niagara Falls pouring itself out for all of eternity. And he does this because it's his nature. God is constantly pouring himself out for those he loves. God is humble and self-giving, not driven by selfish ambition, and instead driven and fueled by love for others, and not just others, but his enemies. And this means a very paradoxical truth. In, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve grasp to become like God. But in grasping to become like God, they are doing the most ungodlike act possible, which is trying to grasp for power. In trying to be like the God that they are worshiping, they are doing the most antithetical act. And that is why Paul is calling out selfishness and pride in this church. If you want to act unlike God in church, simply grab for power. There is no ungodly act like that. 
And so to Paul, to live a life worthy of the gospel, as he puts it, ultimately means to live like Christ, to die to yourselves, to, to your pride, to your, to your pride and ego, your way of doing things, and lift others up above yourselves. A number of weeks ago, Richard put it beautifully, and he said, the way up is down. Jesus, the one person who had the right to consider himself above others, the one person who had the power, chose to give it up for those he loves and those who hated him. And St. Peter's, I hate to admit it, but we are filled with pride in this church. We are a prideful people, and I know this because I am one of you. And pride often creeps up in my heart and grips my heart in many different ways. But it is an antithetical act to the kingdom of heaven, and so we are invited to let our pride die, to move closer and closer to the North Mountains, to follow the path of Jesus, a humble servant. Daily, hourly, minute by minute, we are invited northwards to look at Jesus on the cross and realize that there the truest image of God is shown. If I am made in the image of God, then I am made to look like Jesus dying on the cross. And by letting our pride die, we see people how God sees them, broken but loved. By letting our pride die, we see ourselves rightly, sinners and saints. By letting ourselves die to pride, we stop using others for our own purpose and ambition. We begin to look a little more like Jesus. And I'm convinced that the greatest gift that we can give this city and one another is humility. Being open about our wounds and our scars and brokenness. Before um, church in our pre-service worship, we had this moment and and someone in pre-service worship said, can you just pray for my arm? I'm hurting. And to me, it was this beautiful act of saying, I need help. The way to ask for pride, or to, the way to put pride down is to say, I need help, I am broken, be with me. And as the church, we begin to lift one another up. And to me, that was just a beautiful picture of how we can offer humility to one another. And then Paul ends with the rest of the creed in 9 verse 11. He says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Through Jesus' humility, the world is turned upside down. The cross becomes a throne. Through the cross, Jesus becomes king of all creation. And every week we come together and we kneel and we confess our sins. We are going into that with humility. And then, along with Jesus, we are lifted up. God lifts up Jesus into glory, and with that, he pulls us along with him. And we are convinced that one day, that love and humility will flood the world, and everyone will kneel and bow before the King Jesus. So St. Peter's, my benediction for you this week is simple. May we be unified in mind and spirit. May we consider others above ourselves. May we, like surgeons, cut pride out of our lives. And may we, like Christ, not see power as something to be grasped, but instead, in humility, die to ourselves, 
come alive through resurrection to a new life of freedom and love. And may we know that through Christ, this is made possible. Let me pray.